So um, in this second session, we're going to be looking together, continuing in the theme of refreshing the heart and looking at um, some verses from Isaiah chapter 43. I'm just going to read a few verses from the beginning of the chapter and then as we get to the next, next section, read a little bit more out rather than doing a big long reading, if that's okay. So Isaiah 43 from verse 1, but now this is what the Lord says, he who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear for I have redeemed you, I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. I'm sure lots of us really love these verses. It's always slightly dangerous, isn't it, speaking on verses that are absolutely beloved by every Christian. Um, but let's, let's pray that God speaks to us afresh through his word this morning. There's a friend of mine um, called Daniel who is based in um, Pakistan. He's Pakistani himself and... Um, came to know Jesus very, very dramatically and radically. And um, part of his, as part of his life, he kind of lives in the border regions with Afghanistan. And as part of his life, he's um, spent a lot of time in Afghanistan ministering and preaching and seeing incredible signs and wonders and amazing kingdom things happening. And Daniel tells a, a story of having been on a trip with, um, in a car, in his own car, with a driver and two colleagues. And they'd been sharing the gospel and giving out Bibles and lots of amazing things happened. And um, it got to a point where they were being chased by three Taliban vehicles and the vehicles were all heavily armed. And this is what Daniel's words were. I'm in the car and we're being chased by three cars with weapons. The river is on one side of us, and across the river is a mountain, another mountain. And we are high up, and we keep driving on this ridge until the road runs out. The Taliban were getting closer, and I said to the others, this is the last day of our lives, let's pray little segue um, in Daniel's kind of team and community of Christians many people have been killed and lost their lives so this wasn't a sort of um, you know unlikely notion this is the last day of our lives let's pray then as I prayed I opened my eyes and I saw Jesus in the river and he called to me Daniel don't be afraid I'm with you I will hold you come on. I asked my friends, I told them, the Lord, he's in the river, he will hold us, don't worry. And then the driver nodded and drove the car off the ridge into the river. Daniel says it's very high and the river is very deep. And he says, I saw many doves surrounding us in the car and we reached the other side of the river. The driver asked, what shall I do here? And Daniel said, 
you can just change gear now. <laughs> he said, we were praying, and then we were on the other side. The Taliban reached the end of the road and just looked in amazement. I want to just look at three sections from Isaiah chapter 43. And the first heading is that God is unique and he is with us. God is with us. Even in difficulty, there's no theology of karma here. Good people can expect a good return. There's no what um, Old Testament theologians called banker's theology. What I put in, I expect to get out. What we see here is that God, the living God, the God of the Bible, is with his people, including in times of tremendous difficulty. When you walk through the waters, I'll be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And the same with the fire, you're not going to be burned. God, the God of the Bible, is with you. And so this is really good news. If in your Christian life you have ever experienced feeling overwhelmed, stressed, the fact that you might be going through a time of trial in a period of deep discouragement, feeling at a very deep and intuitive level that you're a failure, the word of God here that's really quite important and that is repeated many times in these first few verses is the word when. When you walk through the waters, when the rivers overwhelm, when fire comes, at that point, I will be with you. When? In other words, the anticipation of the scriptures is that God's people will go through hard times. God's people are going to experience difficulties. Now, some of us um, in the Christian life have perhaps had this idea or somehow picked up this idea that following Jesus is a sort of relentlessly upbeat, positive path to success. And so when our life doesn't quite map out that way, we think, well, I must be failing. There must be something wrong with me because all this stuff is hitting the fan. And, you know, where, where's this success that, that I thought was, was, was going to follow me everywhere? The word that's key in these verses is when, when you walk through the waters, when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through fire, you won't be burned and the flames will not set you ablaze. This is what the Lord says. Now scroll back to the beginning of verse one. Who is this Lord? Who is saying this? Who is saying when this stuff happens, I'm going to be with you? Who is this God? And we're given some clues as to who he is that give us confidence then about what it means that he might be with us when we feel on the brink of overwhelm, when we're struggling with feelings of failure, when, when life's difficulties come. Firstly, he who created you. He who created you. In other words, unlike the dominant worldview of our moment of what it means to be human, you are not an accident, and neither am I. You're not slime here by chance on the face of the planet. You're not just a collection of atoms, the biochemistry of your body. 
who is saying these promises that they will be with you when life is difficult. It is God who created you. The one who brought you into existence. That means you are a creation. You are loved. You are a wanted person made in the image of God. And that is true even if your human parents didn't want you. That is true even if all sorts of other abusive power dynamics have been used against you to oppress you. The God who speaks these words in his word tells you today, you are precious, you have dignity. Now this is spoken to these characters, Jacob and Israel. These are words that describe the covenant people of God in the Old Testament. And actually the covenant people of God, yes, there was this kind of idea of the Jewish nation, but there was always a vision of inclusion. Think about um, throughout the Old Testament, how people who weren't born into Judaism could still enter into the covenant people of God. Of course, Abraham himself, the friend of God, came from this place. Uh, And of course, people like Rahab, the woman in Jericho, who had faith and who put down the scarlet thread and who goes on to be in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, a Gentile woman included into the promises of God. So that's kind of hinted at in the Old Testament. We see it. And then through Jesus, through coming to know God through Jesus, as we read these covenant promises in the Old Testament, because of Jesus, they apply to us. So he who created you, who's saying all this stuff about being with you? It's he who created you. And then this really interesting word, Hebrew word, he who formed you. So there are two different words for creation in Hebrew. One talks about kind of what's called creation ex nihilo, making something out of nothing. That, that um, actual kind of act that, in a way, we can't do. And then a second word that describes the creative process, the Hebrew word, it really means kind of rearranging matter. So using the stuff that God has created to creatively make something beautiful. And here Isaiah uses both these words. You've been made out of nothing and you've been curated and arranged and rearranged into a new thing. And God does both. He makes you and he forms you. And then it says, do not fear because I have redeemed you. So you've been created, ex nihilo. You've been formed. You were wanted and loved and now you've got this kind of tender idea of God actually um, involved in your life. And now he says, I've redeemed you. I've redeemed you. This is speaking of the salvation of God. And sometimes, you know, we all need to remember that the salvation of God is at the initiative of God and it's at the cost of God. And we, we don't do anything. We, all we do is receive it. All we do is open the door because of Jesus and say yes. Uh, one of my very, very dear friends is um, uh, uh, an incredible man. Who, uh, he's an Arab who lives in the Arab world, let's say that. I won't say which country he's from. And um, he's an extraordinary, um, beautiful person. He's actually a leading psychologist in his nation, but... He also speaks very powerfully about Jesus, and he's got loads of kind of YouTube messages um, explaining the gospel and sharing some of his story. 
And um, just after um, the big refugee crisis happened, after uh, you know the absolutely the horrors of what went on in Syria and Iraq, and all the refugees were coming into Europe, he got a visa to be able to come to a European country to minister, to um, uh, preach and, and do some psychological and therapeutic work with um, survivors of that crisis. And um, so he, he landed in this particular Western country, and as he landed, it was around the similar time that the, the terrible thing happened in the Saudi embassy, if you remember that, where that journalist was murdered. And he'd landed in this European country, and he got a text message from the embassy of his country saying, um, your passport has been flagged, and we require that you present yourself at our embassy in this nation. So this is a person who, you know, has had many threats and lives with quite a high level of, of threat and fear, and he sort of thinks, okay, you know, this isn't good. So he arrives at the embassy feeling quite a lot of fear, feeling quite a lot of weakness, and um, the front desk of the embassy see his passport and they look at a screen and they sort of look a bit anxious and they say, come this way. And he, he has to go right in and he has to go upstairs and he's really, really inside now. He's not in the public bit at all. And he's taken into a room. The door is opened and he's put in this room and left alone for quite a while. And he's really praying at this point, you know, just not knowing what's going to happen. Then the door opens and a, a veiled lady comes in. And very unusually, they're alone together. And she begins to speak to him. She's quite a high-ranking official in the embassy. And she says, you might be wondering why you're here. And he sort of nods, but thinks, I think I know why I'm here. And she says, um, I don't think you do know why you're here. You're here because three years ago, I saw this YouTube video that you did, and she said which specific one it was. And through that video, I came to know Jesus. Jesus has been doing all this stuff, and she began to share what Jesus had been doing in her life. Then she said, I thought to myself, I don't know anyone else who's a follower of Jesus in my world. So what I'm going to do is set up a flag on your passport, and if you ever come through a nation where I'm posted, I'm going to bring you to me so that you can pray for me. That's why you're here. God is the one who redeems. Do you know that God? He's the God of the impossible who breaks into our lives and other people's lives. He redeems. He takes the initiative in salvation. And then it says, I have summoned you by name. I've summoned you by name. You know, the significance of names in cultures. You know, it's, very, it's kind of different in every culture, isn't it? Um, my, my husband and I, our, our first baby was actually babies. We had twins. They're 17 now, so it's kind of quite amazing to, to remember the early phase. But I remember spending hours and hours and hours thinking, we've got to come up with two names, and we decided not to find out what sex they were. So we needed multiple, you know, combinations, two boys, two girls, and a boy and a girl, you know. Loads of time spent thinking about what we're going to name our children. I'm sure those of your parents in the room did the same. Why? Because a name speaks of the value of the person. A name tells you you're not just a set of digits. 
You're a person. You have value. And God says, I haven't just called you in general. I've called you in particular. I've called you by name. Some of us, you know, as Christians feel lost in the crowd. You know, we kind of know in the generality, Jesus died on the cross for people and I'm a person, so I'm sort of included. But here Isaiah is driving it home. I have called you by name, speaks specifically and personally to you and to me and to everyone. So this is who speaks, this unique God, unlike, unlike the, the, the gods of the nations around Isaiah. This is who speaks. You are mine. You belong to me. And this is, this is who says, when you walk through water, when, when you walk through fire, I will be with you. I will be with you. Now, let's be honest, this is a somber prospect, isn't it? The journey of each of our lives is going to involve obstacles. It may well involve dangers. It will certainly involve sometimes feeling flooded. It's interesting, isn't it, that language in, I don't know if any of you have had any experience of trauma or have um, read anything about trauma if you support someone who's gone through trauma in your life. And that, that word about being flooded, feeling on the brink of overwhelm, just the cup is at the absolute limit and then it begins to, to brim over. When the flood comes, I will be with you, says the Lord. The reality of suffering and difficulty is not sanitized or denied by the Bible. As Christians, we are not required to pretend everything is okay. I've got my stuff together. You know, I need to put my church face on and be a good representative of Jesus. That is not how it works. When you walk through water, when the waters overwhelm, when the fire comes... And he can truly say, I will be with you. I am with you. Isaiah could prophesy that forwards, towards Jesus, who would be God incarnate, God in flesh, God actually walking through suffering on behalf of us and with us at the crucifixion of Jesus. But as New Testament Christians, we can read this text backwards. We can read it through the lens of Jesus, knowing that undeniably God has acted in history. He has done this. This is true. This is real because of Jesus. So he is unique because he can say, I'm with you. Then in the second section, Isaiah explores the uniqueness of this God by saying he's the only God, verse 8 to 13, if you're taking notes. But it talks about before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no saviour. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, and I am not some foreign God among you. And then you are my witnesses. And no one can deliver out of my hand when I act who can reverse it. The prophet Isaiah has an extraordinary vision 
of who this God is. Chapter 43 of Isaiah is sort of an absolutely breathtaking kind of boast about the awesomeness of God. I am he, I am he. Keeps coming up. There's no other God, no other saviour, no other rock, anything like this God. I'm the only God. It talks about how he's the one who's always existed. He's what Aristotle would have called the unmoved first mover. The one who is unformed, uncreated, through whom and from whom all material reality and metaphysical reality comes. This is God, this is awesome, this kind of defies philosophical categories. And that's good if our God is too easily contained in our very simplistic religion. We're not talking about the God of the Bible. He's going to break out of any boxes we make for him. He's the one who's already always existed. And then we see that he's the one who reveals truths to prophets, which then come to pass. And Isaiah is saying no idol, no entity made by human hands can do that. So an idol that you create, whether that's a physical idol you kind of chisel out of stone, or a... a, a more kind of common modern-day idol which we might make of fame or, or glory or, or money or whatever, the kind of idols that are around us, the one thing they can't do if we've made them is actually speak outside of the bubble of us having made them. They can't intervene into our reality because they're just an iteration of us. So God is the one who can speak And of course, Isaiah exemplifies this. You know, we see the amazing messianic prophecies that Isaiah has. Prophecies about Jesus over 700 years before Jesus is born. And then he says, I'm the only one who can save. I'm the one who can save. We've all got our stories of salvation Um, I I mentioned earlier that my dad was a a refugee. He came to Britain um, after the Second World War. And um, my grandfather was a a brilliant scientist. And after the Second World War, they were living under Soviet occupation. And um, he uh, realized that all the scientists in his kind of field were being moved to Siberia to work on a particular project. And he didn't want to do that. So he made contact with, um, with the British. My grandmother had um, extraordinary experiences of passing messages. And, you know, it's, it's just kind of unbelievable, but it happened. So they get on this small plane, which is, is sent to, you know, just lands in a meadow. And the day is arranged, and they just leave the house. They just, you can't take stuff with you, because that would alert attention. And they arrive at RAF North Holt in what they are standing up in. Um, my aunt has just died, and she lived in Australia. And um, her, her photo album has been sent back. And for the first time, about two months ago, I saw a photograph of my grandparents and my father on that day that they arrived at North Holt. My grandfather was a committed atheist, partly because of you know, the philosophical materialism of that era, and partly because of the trauma he'd experienced. And so he forbade anyone in the family from mentioning the word God or from reading the Bible. 
Scroll forward a few years, my dad's in his 30s, he's a professional academic himself, he's got two wonderful children and a lovely life, he's got a posting in Sydney, Australia, and into his questions, he's beginning to question, is this it, is there more to life than this? Into his questions, at home, with no smoke machine and no amazing music of crescendo in a service or any, anything emotive like that, just at home, whilst at work, marking some exam papers, Jesus Christ appeared to him, and he saw his life flash before him, and he realized, he saw Christ on the cross, and he realized, I'm being offered forgiveness, I'm being offered new life, and he found himself on his knees, and he says, you know, I, I don't, he's had no language for prayer, he's certainly never, you know, been taught how to pray, and he, he says to Jesus, I don't know what to say. And the words that come to mind are the phrase, and this is what he says out loud, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Two weeks later, he thinks, I, I need to um, go forward with Jesus. Maybe I should get a Bible. And he goes and buys a Bible, and someone tells him, you're meant to begin at Mark's Gospel. I don't know who that was. So he begins to read Mark's Gospel, and he reads those words in the mouth of the centurion. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Our God is the God who saves. He's the God who impacts and enters people's lives in the most wonderful way. And then Isaiah says, we are the witnesses of this unique truth. We are the ones who make it known. We're the witnesses. And we see that um, throughout the scriptures. We see this pattern of people encountering the salvation of God and then witnessing to it. And of course, the primary witnesses, for 50% of the population, it's encouraging to hear that the primary witnesses in the New Testament are women. And that subverted all the cultural, you know, ideology of the time. Women who witnessed first the incarnation in Mary, the primary witness to God entering history, then women being the, the last people at the crucifixion, taking account of the details of, of, the, of the death of Jesus, and then, of course, women at the empty tomb. That's not really an Isaiah, but I thought I'd slip that one in. <laughs> and uh, so Isaiah says in verse 10, you are my witnesses. You are my witnesses. And then again in verse 12. So he is unique. He's the one who is with us, and he's the only God and then lastly, he's the one who saves, verses 14 to 28. Um, I won't read out that this whole thing, but it talks about laying waste the mountains and hills and drying up the vegetation and making a, a way in the wilderness, making a way in the wilderness. God is acting on our behalf, making a way where things are impossible. This is kind of circling back to those first early favorite verses. God is the one who makes a way. He's talked about, Isaiah has talked about waters just flooding and overwhelming and fire. And now the image is the wilderness, making a way in the wilderness, the desert, the place people go to die, the place that is dry, the place of terrible, terrible loneliness. 
The image of um, a way in the wilderness would have been very familiar to Isaiah's original hearers. It's perhaps not terribly familiar to us. I've only once um, been caught um, and stuck in the wilderness. The context was my husband and I had been, uh, we weren't married at the time, but a small team of us had gone into Afghanistan. We'd taken Bibles in. We'd got to meet the leadership of the Taliban. That's another story. Some of you might have heard it before. Give them Bibles and live to tell the tale. It was, it was a wonderful story. But because the civil war was happening, you couldn't fly in and out of the country. So we went over a land border. And um, we were going via a country called Turkmenistan, which in and of itself was a closed country. And when we got out of Afghanistan, having given these Bibles away, having seen God do these amazing things, we find ourselves at the Turkmen border. This is an absolute desert. You've got landmines on either side. It's just, you, you, you can barely see the way. And then a sandstorm begins. So we're stuck in the middle of the desert in a sandstorm, and the Turkmen guards aren't letting us through the border. There's a two or three kilometer hike to the station, the train station, and then there's like an 18-hour train ride back to the capital city from where we were going to get our flight home. Now, the train only went twice a week, and the Turkmen guards knew this, and they knew we were desperate to get the train, and they wanted a bribe. And the thing is, obviously, as Christians, we didn't want to bribe them, although at one point, Frog did start looking through Proverbs to see if there was a verse that says bribery was okay. <laughs> and then we realized we don't have any money. We were students. We don't have any money to bribe them. So he says to me, Amy, listen, I'm going to hold up my passport and I'm going to demand to speak to the British consul because it is my international right. And if that doesn't work, you cry. <laughs> so at that point, I thought that's not going to be difficult. So... Up goes Frog and makes this great speech, and, and they just, you know, stone-faced, so I cry, that doesn't work either. So we're in the desert, we've missed the train. The sandstorm comes, there's landmines on either side of where we are, you cannot see a metre in front of your face. It's the middle of the afternoon, and the sandstorm in the wilderness means you cannot see a thing, it is like thick darkness. It's also like your skin being sandblasted. I thought I'm aging 20 years here. Extraordinarily terrifying. Now in that situation, we needed God to make a way for us, literally. And that is exactly what happened. The Red Cross arrived, took us all the way back into the heart of Afghanistan. We had to get a different piece of paper from the Turkmen consul there came all the way back, we'd missed the train, we'd get through the border. By this point, we haven't eaten for nearly two days because we were students and had run out of money. We don't know how we're going to get, but at least we're out of the war zone. We don't know how we're going to get back to our flight. And out of nowhere, a car drives up. And it was one of those Soviet-era, you know, Trabants, tiny little car with window wound down, wound down like this. And there's an old couple in the front, and they just drive up, and they say, can we help you, in English? And we say, we get our map out, and we like, we'd worked out there was a bus from this place, which we thought was maybe 12, 14 hours away. And we point to this on the map and said, Kent, can you, can you take us here? And we showed them. We had, like, I don't know, $100 or $50 left for the rest of the trip, and, and said, can you get us here? We'll give you this. And they sort of nodded and took us into the car, and then they gave us food, and after this point, they couldn't speak any more English, right? But we're in this tiny car, two guys and me in the middle, with our rucksacks, just crammed in for 14 hours. 
But we began to sing and we sang hymns of praise to God. And the glory of God filled that car in a way I've never experienced before or since. The only way I can describe it is like everything looked yellow. It was extraordinary. And this couple were just crying and they were saying, Jesus, Jesus, sometimes over the 14 hours. So we're going through this and we finally get to the destination. They drop us at the bus station. We kind of climb out of this car. We put our rucksacks on. We turn around to give them the $50 note and they're gone. We can't see them. God had, I don't know whether they were angels or very fast drivers or what happened, but God made a way for us in the wilderness. Now, people reading the Old Testament in Isaiah's time would have known what that meant. We don't really know it and experience it at a visceral level because we're not living in the threat of the wilderness in 21st century Britain. But what God is saying to his people is that is what redemption, that is what salvation looks and feels like when you are at the end, at the very end, your very survival perhaps physically, perhaps spiritually, perhaps in what it just means to be you, when you're absolutely at the end of your rope, our God is the God who meets you there and saves you and delivers you and brings you in, praise him, and brings you in to his kingdom. He's unique. He's for you. He's with you. He doesn't say there's never going to be a fire. There's never going to be a flood. We're all going to be absolutely fine with no bumps on the way. If you've experienced difficulty, you are not a failure. Our God is for you today. He is unique. There's no one like him. No idol could possibly do what he can do. And he is the God who redeems and saves Jago's theme was this theme of refreshment from God. And Isaiah's vision is that you and I would see God afresh, that we would know him, and that is how we're delivered from fear. Because we encounter him coming alongside us, lifting us and strengthening us, as we heard earlier this morning. And that we would see and know an encounter when we're in the fire, when we're in the water, or we're anticipating or dreading them because we can see them coming on the horizon. He's the God who makes a way in the wilderness. Why don't we stand and um, I'm going to invite Tim to come. He's going to lead us in ministry. But why don't we just stand for a moment in quietness and invite that God who Isaiah saw and who we can now see and experience afresh through Jesus. Let's invite him to meet us where we are, perhaps in fear or anxiety, perhaps in a context of experiencing or feeling that fire or or, um, flood. Let's invite him, the one who knows you by name, not in general, in particular, you. He wants to meet you. And yes, us corporately together, of course. And he says, I, I, I'm redeeming you. I'm turning things around. And it's going to be like a way in the wilderness, in the impossible. So let's just be quiet for a moment. And we invite you, the living God, to come now and meet us, your people.